Hello and welcome to the Rev It Up Podcast, helping entrepreneurs fill up their tanks, crank up the RPMs, and put the pedal to the metal until they cross that finish line. Hello, I'm Jess Tiffany. Ready, set, go. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. I am super excited to have a wonderful guest today with us, Neil Schaefer. And Neil is an author of The Age of Influence and is just uh, an absolutely incredible guy. And uh, I'd like to introduce you to him. Here's Neil. Hey Jess, thanks for having me today. I'm psyched to be here. Yeah, glad to, glad to have you. And could you tell him a little bit uh, a little bit more in depth on your background and some of the awesome things you've uh, accomplished? Sure. Well, I'm a, a digital and social media marketing author, consultant, speaker, uh, written four books. Uh, my first two books are actually about LinkedIn, published like a decade ago. Um, I then wrote a book on social media strategy called Maximize Your Social. And this year I published a book called The Age of Influence, which is about influence marketing. I've done a lot of speaking over the years. I teach uh, executives at a few universities, you know, digital and social media marketing. And I have a consultancy, which really began a decade ago with a social media marketing strategy consultancy, which, which more recently has really evolved into a fractional CMO service that I do for select uh, innovative you know, companies. So uh, in a nutshell, the, that's who I am and what I do. Awesome. And so when clients are you know, um, kind of considering uh, getting a, a CMO, what are some indications that they might uh, need your services? I think it's CEOs and business leaders that feel lost in digital and maybe they're they're working with agencies like yourself or maybe not a full-blown agency but they have a pay-per-click campaign or a pay-per-click agency or an seo agency and there's social and there's content and 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 they just need they have a lot of pieces but they don't have any strategic overview as to how they all work together and how to optimize budget and really get maximum ROI. And that's really the role that I fit because I have experience in, in, in all these different categories and really try to create strategy, um, you know, a dashboard reporting and really, you know, optimizing marketing spend to get the best bang for your buck in this digital first world that we live in, that's, which is vastly different than it was just 12 months ago or even 10 months ago. And when you go into a company, um, what what are maybe like the, the two most common problems that you see that are just plaguing a lot of companies out there? I think number one, they were late to the digital game. Mm-hmm. And Jess, maybe you see this. I mean, you've been, your agency has been working with clients for a long time. Um, but there are still, you know, mainly smaller businesses, some are bigger, that just never got caught up with digital. They were just caught in the old ways. We find this more with B2B industries. Yeah. And look, how the heck are you going to create relationships today when it's all digital? So this has been a wake up call to a lot of companies that were late to the game or they just weren't doing it right, or they weren't seeing the results. That's obviously the number one thing. The other one is, I think it's when people get exposed to me through my book or, you know, I have my own podcast called maximize your social influence. And I talk about things and write about things and blog about things on neilshaver.com that they haven't even considered before because they really haven't, strategically approached marketing. It's almost like legacy. Like, well, we've been spending a few thousand dollars with SEO here a month and, you know, 10,000 on pay-per-click. It's like, you know, maybe we should think about how would influencers fit in or should we be shifting, you know, more from Google pay-per-click to Facebook, you know, avids or, you know, just trying to figure out, is there a better way to do this? Can we get more ROI? Can we get more growth from a marketing spend? So I think it's really one of those two categories 
where they find this great need. I'm sure Jeff, I mean, the companies that reach out to you and your agency, I'm sure you find it very, very similar, but that's what I see a lot of. And the, the digital transformation is really what's pushing. I mean, I guess you could say the coronavirus pandemic is pushing both sides of the puzzle. Those that are late to the game and those that realize that it's digital or die. And we really need to figure this out. And we, you know, if we're not seeing the growth, we gotta, we gotta shake things up and do things better. Yeah. 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 The, the, yeah, it's like everything's been magnified since the virus came in. It's as far as the digital transformation, I think it was already happening, but but it's really been magnified. I, I totally agree with you. Um, so you mentioned influencers. Is there any uh, you know any tips on how a business is supposed to find these people? Well, the funny thing is that everybody has a perception about influencers. They're teenagers or twenty somethings with 10 million followers on Instagram and we've never heard of them. And who are these followers and are these likes fake or not? And when I wrote the book, I realized that this misconception was holding a lot of marketers back from investing in influencer marketing. Cause the way that I see influencer marketing and just, we were talking before we started my background's B2B, right? I, my background's B2B sales. And I realized that, you know, back in the day in order to sell, into these large companies I was dealing with, it required to it required to sell together with partners, right? You have these ecosystem partners, yep. resellers, value-added reseller system integrators. And therefore these partnerships were what not only generated leads, but often helped me close deals. So then you fast forward to social media, you have things like and that, you know, you have things like social selling and you have things like employee advocacy. And then you have things like affiliate marketing, which have been, we were just talking about that you know, just when we started uh, uh, right before the podcast. Um, and, and so really what we're doing is, you know, that, that ecosystem in, in order to do social selling, we're, we're trying to tap into other people, but we're doing it now digitally. You know, we're doing it over LinkedIn. We're doing it through, uh, you know, a corporate blog, what have you. And, you know, the whole idea about influencer marketing is you're tapping into other people that have digital influence. So when you want to put on a virtual event, because you want to generate leads, you're reaching out to influencers. You don't call that influencer marketing, but it's the same concept. Mm. Before coronavirus, when we did a physical event, we would want influential speakers at our event because they're going to drive attendance, right? They're going to let their network know. Or when we do a podcast, podcasters are all influencer marketers. Most of them do a lot of interviews with influencers, right? Yep. In hopes of tapping into their network. So it's not just Instagram, it's LinkedIn. It's everywhere. It's not just, you know, photos, it's blogs, it's, it's podcasts, it's videos. And it's really just tapping into the digital power of others. And this becomes really important because social media really is pay to play. Now for people, it's not. People rule social media. So for businesses, you ideally want to tap into the algorithm power that other people have. And the influencer marketing industry, which I'm not a part of, I'm an, you know, an outside consultant, they even say, you know, back in the day, you need to have a million followers to be considered an influencer. And then they came up with a term called micro-influencer. You need to have 10,000 followers. Well, now they have a term called nano-influencer. Even people with 1,000 followers on any given social network have influence. So when, when businesses ask me that question, Jess, I say, okay, look at your employees, look at your partners, look at your customers. Look at your followers, look at people that mention you in social media. How many of them have some influence? How many of them have built somewhat of a network, somewhat of a community? And how can you collaborate with them? And therefore, I think it's really easy to find these people. I mean, the other way is you do searches on Google, you use tools like BuzzSumo, or there's another tool called Right Relevance, which can help you find influencers or any of the influencer marketing tools out there. But then you're starting with people that have never heard about you potentially. And therefore, it's going to be transactional, it's going to be expensive. 
there's no long-term ROI. I recommend starting with people that already know, like, and trust. Mm. Really, I think the greatest contribution, hopefully I made to marketing through my book, The Age of Influence, was this brand affinity model, right? And I think it's a model that makes sense. It's what, you know, this whole thing about customer lifetime value that, you know, if your customers refer other people, then that customer has a greater lifetime value. So find that 1% or 2% of your customers that are really active in social that have built up a community and find ways to collaborate, you know, invite them to speak, invite them, you know, for a blog interview or to help create content. Uh, I, I think once you start a program that includes these people, that's where you start to see the magic and influencer marketing is no longer a one-off campaign, but really this long-term, you know, leveraging people power uh, to help empower your social media because otherwise social media, is going to become very expensive because it's going to come down to paid social because uh, your organic is just not going to cut it anymore. That's a, that's a great point about looking, you know, looking within, you know, who are your customers, who are your, you know, your partners. I think that's, that's a, a great way to a great way to start. And, uh, you know, you know, a lot of the, I think like, even if you have like a local, uh, you know, restaurant or a local store, how can you tap into the, the, the customers you already have to get them to share, you know, you know, maybe give them a, you know, a free meal while they're standing at the line, if they, you know, share it out to their group, if they have, you know, some influence and stuff, but, you know, I don't, you know, yep. whatever it, that transaction is, but, but I really agree about, you know, tapping into the people you already know, like, and trust. That's, that's, that's key. So. It's all, you know, Jess, it's all word of mouth. And if you want social media to work for you, you got to incite word of mouth marketing. And your organic posts are not going to do it. Your paid social is not going to do it. The only way to do it is when people talk about you. So at some point, unless you're a Coca-Cola, you got to get people talking about you. And that's where you incite word of mouth through working with influencers. And just the easiest way to do that is with people that already know, like, and trust you, right? Yeah. So, uh, so, and I think that's the companies that get that are going to be successful going forward. Oh, awesome. I like that. And um, so... I, with your, cause your, your hands really on the pulse. What, what are a couple of things you see kind of the, how the market's moving, like the future of social? So I think when I look at the future of social, that it is a lonely place for brands mm. and people yield more and more influence. And I think with uh, platforms like TikTok, it's pretty clear. I mean, if a brand wants to participate in TikTok, it is quite challenging, right? And I think Instagram already provided a challenge, but when you get to visual and video, um, brands just cannot create the type of engaging content that people can. Mm. So I, I see social media, you know, I, I want brands to reimagine how they use social media. I want them to use social media like what we're doing today, Jess, mm. is to get to know people. When you look at social media, and you've been doing this for a while, and I think a lot of B2B sales and marketing people get this, a lot of B2C don't. But when you look at social media, not as a way to market, and promote and advertise, which we're going to do anyway as marketers, when you see social media as a place to collaborate yeah. and a place to meet people and find ways to work together for mutual value, yeah. that's when the magic and power of social media comes alive for companies. And that is where I see it going. Uh, I tell companies, you know, if you have content, great, but there's nothing wrong with leveraging just the content of your fans to share as your own content, right? Mm. You know, you don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel if your fans will do it for you. So I see social media as becoming a very, I, I almost see it going back to, you know, social media began when I first started blogging in 2008. Social media was owned by PR. It wasn't owned by marketing. 
And I almost see it going back. If marketers can't develop these sorts of relationships with, with people, I almost see it going back to PR um, of, you know, influencer relations people mm-hmm. and finding ways of, of leveraging social for that. I mean, you, you still have your other outlets for your own content, your own promotion. You still got Google and, and your blog and, and what have you. But I definitely see social media going in that direction. And the smart companies will let their fans do the talking for them. Nice. Hey everybody, Jess here. What if I could help your company find over $100,000 in hidden revenue streams in less than an hour without spending an extra dime on advertising or marketing? Reach out to me at cardzap.thebumpcard.me. Check out the video on five steps to profit and also reach out and we can have a conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I often people say, well, how do you make money on LinkedIn? And I'm saying, the best way to make money on LinkedIn is get them off of LinkedIn. Yeah. So, you know, have, a, have, have a relationship. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just recorded a, a podcast episode that I, I dropped on Monday and it was about, you know, you can spend, you know, two hours creating the perfect Instagram photo or 30 minutes creating that perfect LinkedIn post where you have a question, then a, then a line break, and then a question, a line break. And, you know, you can use your creative powers to do that, but guess what? It's there and it's gone. Mm-hmm. Right. But when you create content, like for your blog, when you create like YouTube video or when you create podcast audio content that has a shelf life that is way longer than that one little post on social media. So we talk about the hamster wheel of content and it is an, it's, it's an evil necessity, but when you try to do too much with social and you, you prioritize it too much, you really get caught up in that. And I think you miss out on the value because it's exactly as you said, the social is really to pull people back. It's to get them to not to, to like you and know you, but you really want to pull them back into your sphere of influence, which really is your website um, and, or, you know, your podcast, YouTube channel. Um, but even podcast, YouTube channel, they can, you know, right after they see your, your, your video or, or listen to your podcast, they're being recommended to your competitors. So at the end of the day, it comes down to your website. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's funny. I've, I've been asked about all these trends for 2021. I think it's, it's getting back to basics, Jess. It's this digital first mindset. It's, you know, are we, is our website optimized? Is our SEO optimized? Um, are we doing the right pay-per-click campaigns? Do we, do we even have an email list? Are we doing marketing automation in a sophisticated way? No. And that's really, you know, my recommendations is, Hey, you know, what's old is new again. And that's where you should be doubling down right now. Yeah. I've been talking to a lot of people and they, 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 you know, they've really neglected a lot of those, you know, little pieces and it's like their, their system's broken. It's like a bumpy wheel, you know, they, it's not, it's not a smooth system all around. So, um, and it's very different today than it was five years ago. The technology is different. Even just in the world of SEO, you have, you know, things like search intent and it, it's sort of a different ball game. And yeah. if you haven't been keeping up with it, yeah, you find yourself with, with antiquated systems that, um, you know, that, that need revamping. I mean, if you haven't, if you were getting great traffic and all your blog content was published five years ago, um, there's a lot more competition now, right? Just for starters. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing. You hear how much blog content's out there. It's like, mil- you know, billions of con- documents now. And it's just crazy. But um, so it's like, how do you get through all that noise? But uh, so um, I was going to ask you about uh, a silly thing, but I see you have a UFO picture in the back and says, I want to believe. So t- I just wanted to, to break up the content and throw, throw, throw a curveball at you. Well, do you know what a TV show that's from? I don't. I can't. It's from the X-Files. Oh, yes. Okay. Ah, I should have remembered that one. I, I did watch many, many episodes. <laughs> so. Yeah, I am. Um, 
we were introduced or reintroduced from Dan Nestle and Dan's someone I know from Japan. Well, I know him from the States as well. So I lived in Japan from 1990 to 2005 and I missed out on an incredible amount of, of American popular culture in the days before I could access Netflix overseas. Uh So I found myself over the last 15 years trying to play catch up on all this popular culture. (laughs) Um, The X-Files, I mean, I saw it many years ago, obviously, but yeah, it's, uh, I want to fill my room with these popular culture, um, you know, posters. And that's, that's definitely one of them. Awesome. Well, it's it's fun, if nothing else, right? (laughs) It's a great conversation piece for uh, podcast interviews. That's for sure. I get asked a lot about it. Yeah. Um, So I I wanted to get back to kind of Japan and um, could you tell them a little bit about what you're doing with the, you know, how you're bringing companies across from, you know, from American to Japanese and and stuff on your digital transformations? Yeah. I mean, I lived in Japan 15 years doing business there. That's where I got my B2B sales background. And um, I help a lot of Japanese companies, both in Japan, as well as their English marketing here in the United States. So, um, you know, part of what I do now is a, a fractional CMO service and, you know, a good half of my clients are Japanese companies because I speak the language. Yeah. I understand the culture and therefore it's easier for them to understand, you know, it's, it, it's easier for them to localize what they do when they hear it in Japanese from an American. <laughs> um, but it also sort of differentiates me in Japan as well in that we're way ahead of Japan in terms of digital marketing and social media marketing. So there's always that side of they want to tap into sort of, you know, the leading trends. Um, But I'd say I do more business with, you know, Japanese companies here, but, you know, whenever I go back to Japan, I'm meeting with their headquarters, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also networking and keeping my name out there for opportunities. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I almost think I was born to help Japanese companies with that because of my experience in language. Uh, And it's something I really love to do. I mean, I just love to help companies, help them see the light, help them make more money, uh, do things better. And obviously with Japanese companies, I provide even a, a greater value uh, because I get the language. So yeah, it's something I really enjoy doing. Yeah. Well, I know this isn't directly related, but, but uh, with some of our books, you know, um, uh, we, um, we pay translators to translate them into other languages. So if you don't get the big foreign rights deal on your books, and, but you want to sell more books, one way for an author to diver- diversify is to, to have it translated into multiple languages and then sell it yourself through, you know, Amazon or whatever. So anyway, I just, for some reason, the language thing popped in my head, but, um, but I have a couple, couple new books that just came up and I, that I'm looking at getting translated. So, but it, um, forward rights deals is the way to go if you can, but if you can't uh, translate it. So. And that's, that's really smart. I was going to say, because I've had, it only my, my most recent, and I had offers of my self-published books, but only my most recent book have I gotten two foreign rights deals, one for Vietnamese and one for Bulgarian, just random languages. Yeah. Um, but I was actually negotiating. You'll find this interesting, Jess, before my latest book is with HarperCollins Leadership. But right before HarperCollins Leadership, I was introduced to them. I was working with a Dutch publisher and they told me that the business, for some reason, like Amazon isn't in the Netherlands and, and therefore the Dutch bookstores still have a majority market share in terms of book sales. But but he told me that best-selling books in Dutch for business can sell like 60,000 copies. Yeah. So he was really pushing me to work with them and maybe in a future book I might, but, yeah. um, but there's, you know, it, it, just if you can get 10, 15, 20,000 sales in a foreign language, I mean, that that's, you know, icing on the cake. So I think it's a, you know, it's a great strategy to reach out with the foreign language book to begin with and don't wait for the foreign rights deals, especially if it's a strategic market. Yeah. 
yeah, I think one of our books, uh, it didn't sell very well in the U.S., to be honest. But then when we hit the Italian market and it went off like gangbusters. I don't know. Crazy, what, huh? I don't know any. I have no idea why. It just, But I was happy about it. So <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's great. So well, good. So um, if you have a company that's uh, out there that's looking for, um, you know, maybe one or two uh, kind of a revenue generation ideas, is, is there any kind of like go tos uh, in your book? Well, when you uh, revenue generation for me, it's very broad. Yeah. Um, can you give me more example yeah, as to what cool. type of company and what type of industry with what yeah, type of absolutely. product or service? Yeah. What am I consulting hat here? Yeah, no, no, no. Um, I guess let's say like a, you know, maybe a $10 million company service-based uh, looking to, uh, you know, grow their users, something like that. Well, pardon me here. Um, I think that growing your users means, I mean, it could mean a few things, but you need to get more people aware of what you do. So in order to do that, we get down to the basics of, of digital, which is search social email. Mm-hmm. Um, search could help you if you, uh, here's a great example of, I mean, you can translate books. You can also translate blog content. You can get them indexed into foreign search engines as well, which we were just talking about um, Neil Patel before we started. And I know that's something he's done a lot of and has found success there. Um, obviously, you know, pay-per-click ads is a great way to get exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps if you've already been doing this and yet you're not getting those users, then maybe it's, it's, you know, it's a different target persona and different target keywords that you want to use so that you get this new audience. Mm-hmm. Um, social media becomes really powerful as well as a place to uh, promote in terms of advertising. I say advertising because, you know, the long-term ROI is in, is in the SEO and the content and the email marketing, but the short term, if you just want user acquisition, it's going to cost you more, but that's where the advertising comes in, whether it's Google, um, you know, the SEO translation is probably going to take you a little bit of time to get in the search engine rankings, but it, it can happen over the course of a few months. Social media ads can be really beneficial. Um, and then you get into like lookalike, lookalike audiences, uh, which can help as well. So I, you know, like I said, I, I, I like to go with the basics and to me, that's sort of where the basics are. Maybe, um, you know, offer resources, uh, lead magnets uh, to this new audience, uh, virtual events, obviously special deals. You could also work with industry influencers to try to generate uh, some business there. Uh, for instance, you know, through a virtual event and hiring them to speak at that event. So it's really, you know, reaching out to people who don't know you, which ends up becoming the most expensive thing. It, the cheapest thing is to have someone that already is your customer buying again from you. Yeah. But yeah, it, it takes money to make money. And I think um, I don't think it's rocket science. I think the devil's in the details of how you implement each one of these things that I talked about. Mm-hmm. But those are the things that I would look at. I would I would throw, you know, I don't know what your average um, cost per acquisition per customer is, but definitely throw a decent amount of budget at a few of these different things and really measure over the course of time um, and, and figure out what's delivering the biggest bang for your buck and then go all in on that. Yeah. Do you have a preference on like lifetime value? Um, how, how much like a percentage that you're willing to go to, to acquire that? If, does that make, make it, it depends on so many things. Yeah, that's true. Even, yeah, yeah, it does. Because, you know, some companies are in growth stage where they'll take a cut on profitability yeah. in, in order to grow their user base. So there's no one cookie cutter approach to it. It's, sure. it's really, you know, that's really what it comes down to. But, you know, if, if we get back to that, you know, the Henry Ford, it takes money to make money. 
Um, it's really, you know, understanding and a lot of small businesses I talk to don't really have that number. They don't really know how much it costs to, to acquire a customer. Yeah. Um, and that's really where, where it becomes important to understand that because you might end up spending a lot of money with very little return. Um, but yeah, it's, it's important for each one of these channels I, that I talked about of really understanding what is that, you know, cost per action. And it's not as clear sometimes as getting the customer. It may be getting them to sign up for a free trial and then X percent of those convert. So you need to, you need to have your own KPIs and measurement, but yeah, it's really getting down to the basics and having a solid infrastructure of KPIs and measurement in place. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I don't feel comfortable like, you know, with, you know, going over like, you know, if it takes you so many, you know, if it takes you three years to recoup on the customer. Can you, you know, if your lifetime value is longer, that's a long time. Yeah. Three years is, is way too long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but depend, you know, it depends on the, you know, the product like, um, and stuff like that. So that's kind of, it was interesting. So, um, I wanted to ask you, what's like a, a failure that you've had that you really got a life, good life lesson from. If you care to uh, allow that to be out in the world. <laughs> um, I think this gets to that customer lifetime value that you were talking about as well. I think my own business model in <clears throat> consulting was that it was a one and done deal. Mm. And there was never any sort of retainer aspect to it. Okay. Meaning that all of the business was very short term. There's a lot of business to be had but it was very short term. There's a lot of word of mouth referrals. There are always enough projects, but you know, business at the end of it comes down to relationships. And Jess, I'm sure you get a lot of business because either people like, know, and trust you, or you get referred to from people that like, know, and trust you. Yeah. So, you know, if, if anything that my B2B sales background has taught me is, is it's all about relationships. So just being able to keep my foot in the door through a longer term relationship uh, in consulting. And that's why I've sort of, you know, pivoted from more per project type consulting, which is very short term to more longer term retainer based fractional CMO services in that I can keep my foot in the door mm-hmm. and further develop and deepen that relationship, which I think is a win-win for both parties. Yeah. So yeah, I'd say that that was a, um, I don't think that mistake hurt me because there was so much business to be had, but um, considering just the way that business works. Yeah. I mean, it, it probably cost me some, uh, opportunity profit opportunity sales over time, but it's been corrected. And, uh, you know, I just, I try to live a life of no regrets. So at the time it made sense. Um, and, uh, yeah, we learn and, and we move on and we don't look back. Yeah. I, I think I struggle and still, I even still, still struggle with it sometimes, but I, you know, you just want to help everybody and, and, you, you know, and, and you just can't, you know, you got to yep. make good decisions and, uh, and, uh, and you, you don't, you know, you don't ever want to chase the money. You just want to, um, you know, yeah, strategically help the right clients. <laughs> yeah. It's powerful. The first time that I rejected a client, that was really powerful. And the power of choice is incredible. And working with the right clients makes or breaks your business without a doubt. And the lower, you price yourself, the higher the chance of you're working with the wrong clients. <laughs> yeah, we've as, as entrepreneurs, right? We've learned over time, um, but uh, but yeah, definitely, there's been a lot of uh, a life lifelong learning lessons over the past decade for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, most most uh, most people need to look at their pricing and, and adjust it upwards a lot of times. And uh, the best way to grow your business, pricing. So when people talk about new users, it's like, well, what about 
you know, repurposing your products and services and charging more. Always opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Neil, where do people find you so they can get more information? Because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that uh, need your service. Well, my name is Neil Schaefer. And uh, though I've had various brands in the past, I realized that your personal brand is the most powerful brand you have. So the name of my website is neilschafer.com. I am the real Neil. So it's N-E-A-L. And my last name is S-C-H-A-F-F-E-R. So neilschafer.com, Neil Schaefer on social. The name of my new book is called The Age of Influence, available on Amazon or wherever you buy books. And the name of my podcast, if you're a podcast listener, because you're listening to this podcast, is called the Maximize Your Social Influence Podcast. Awesome. Perfect. And I want to thank you personally uh, for being on the show. I've, uh, I've learned a lot and I, uh, I appreciate it very much. So, um, so everybody that's listening, I want to thank you for listening today. Please like, uh, subscribe, and uh, share this. And uh, we like reviews too, if you can handle that for us too. So thank you so much. And we'll see you on the next show.